Coming soon to own on video cassette. Y2K front, despite all of the assurances that the Y2K computer problems are under control. Team's debut of Star Wars to be the opening act for a multi-billion dollar summer show. Only one question remains, just how many box office records can one movie break? You take the blue pill, the story ends. I see dead people. Malkovich, Malkovich. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. I will not apologize for what I need. I will not apologize for what I want. Five, four, three, two, one. Happy 1999. Welcome back to 1999, the year that rocked cinema. My name is Jared Stossel. My name is Andrew Tucker. And this is the podcast where we are trying to do a deep dive of every film released in the year 1999, getting down to the core reason of why this was one of the most influential years in all of cinematic history. This week, we are, I guess it's safe, we're traveling to Thailand or the Philippines. I wouldn't say that it's safe that we're traveling to Thailand, but we are traveling to Thailand. <laughs> or would we say we're traveling to Phil- to the Philippines since that's where this was filmed? Well, Jared, you're mm. you're kind of blowing our wad early here, but <laughs> Okay. So, we're talking about this this week we're talking about the 1999 drama film Broke Down Palace. So, it's kind of a weird film. Uh so I'm not really going to do too much talking off the like right off the bat, but Andrew, like just quick first impression, what do you think of this movie? I, I still don't know. I watched it like okay. two weeks ago. I still don't know. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. So let's just jump into it then. Let's set the scene. Broke Down Palace was directed by Jonathan Kaplan and written by David Arada with a story by Arada and Adam Fields. It opened on August 13th, 1999. Brief synopsis provided to us by IMDb.com. Two women are arrested for smuggling while vacationing in Thailand. Now, Andrew, to give us the whole story, give us the rundown. Yep, so here we go, man. It's 1963, and there's a man named Joe Aguirre, and he's just hired Ennis Del Mar and Jack Twist to herd his sheep. And once they're out on the trail, Jack and Ennis start drinking real heavy, and one night, Jack makes a pass at Ennis, who despite (laughs) protesting at first, responds to his advances. And Ennis tells Jack that it was just a one-night stand, but the two men quickly start to develop a passionate sexual For the record, I did not read this beforehand. You son of a bitch. What, why do you keep calling me a son of a bitch? Because broke, that's Brokeback Mountain. Brokeback Mountain, not Broke Down Palace. Fuck, okay. I knew I had something wrong. <sighs> Let me start over. Hold on a second. Let me compose uh... myself. All right. Okay. Sorry. It's 1999, I think. And two lifelong besties named Alice Morano and Darlene Davis are getting ready to take off on the graduation trip of a lifetime. Is this sounding more accurate? Yeah, this sounds a little bit better. I've seen both of these movies, and I was like, you uh, you dick. Well, it's tricky because they both have the line, I can't quit you. <laughs> That's not true at all. I'm making shit up now to back Continue. up my previous mistake. The girls are supposed to be going to Hawaii, which is a relatively safe tourist destination for a couple of white bread Midwestern girls. But there's a problem. 
While Darlene comes from a very well-off family with plenty of cash to burn, Alice is a little more working class, and Hawaii is expensive as fuck. So, Alice comes up with a brilliant idea. Let's go to Thailand instead. Because if you can't go to Hawaii, second choice, clearly Thailand. (laughs) At first, this makes a lot of sense. It's way cheaper, so the girls can get a lot more bang for their buck. And that's not like a weird Thai sex joke, because I know they have like clubs for that and shit. That's just, for once, I'm not trying to make a pun. Anyway, okay, (laughs) Thailand is a lot sketchier than Hawaii, at least in their minds. So the girls make the not-so-smart decision to lie to their parents and pretend that they're still going to Hawaii. Because if they tell their parents they're going to Thailand, their parents are going to say, no, you're not going to fucking Thailand. You're going to Hawaii. So anyway, once Alice and Darlene get to Thailand, they decide that their $6-a-night hostel isn't up to snuff, and they decide to sneak into the expensive hotel down the street for some pool time. They order drinks, and in an attempt to be slick, Alice charges the drinks to a random room number. But guess what? The guy whose room it is just so happens to be sitting across the pool from them. So he tattles to the hotel staff, and it looks like the girls are about to get into major trouble. But just then, a hot young Australian dude named Nick Parks comes and saves their asses. So, both of these girls think that Nick is a total dreamboat. But Darlene in particular is super down to fuck. So... When Nick offers to fly both of them to Hong Kong for a couple of days, Darlene does some major guilt tripping to convince Alice that they should go. Which is weird, because Alice was like, hey, let's go to fucking Thailand in the first place. So, like, she's up for anything, but then suddenly not. But anyway, Alice and Darlene go to the airport, and they hop in line for their flight. And you have to remember that airports worked a lot differently back then. You could just, like, walk in and go to where your plane was and, like, get on it and leave. But before they can... Grab a giant slice of Sbarro pizza. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. If you wanted to have, like, somehow hard diarrhea is what you got from Sbarro. (laughs) On a flight, it's a great choice. Yeah. Um, Anyway, before they could get on the plane, a bunch of Thai cops with spooky-looking rifles showed up and detained them, right? And so both girls are horrified to discover that one of their bags has a bunch of heroin in it. And they're even more horrified when they realize that Nick's the one who put it there. So I guess that old Australian saying is true when they say, throw another shrimp on the bobby. If by Barbie, you mean unsuspecting American teenager, and by shrimp, you mean a bunch of heroin. (laughs) So, the girls get thrown in some holding cells that pretty much look like the last room of Pirates of the Caribbean. And just like Disneyland stripped me of my annual pass, (laughs) the Thai police strip Alice and Darlene of their freedom. And when they're interrogated, the street-smart Alice is clued in enough to not sign the pre-typed confession that's written in Thai. Although, for some reason, she lacked the street-smart to figure out the whole thing was a setup in the first place, but anyway inconsistent knowledge is one of the keys to this movie making sense. Darlene isn't as quick to figure out what's going on, and she just signs the fucking confession, ultimately condemning both of the girls to a 33-year sentence in a Thai prison. And that might sound bad, but when you compare it to the more traditional punishments, which are either life in prison or death, things could actually be a hell of a lot worse. For example, one of them could have a cockroach burrow into her skull through her ear canal, which actually does happen Mm -hmm. to Darlene in the movie. So, once they're in prison, the girls learn that they pretty much have three options. One is rot in jail, two is bribe a guard to get out, and three is seek the help of an American expatriate lawyer by the name of Henry Yankee Hank Green, which is the most American name we've used on this podcast since we talked about Wild Bill Donovan a few episodes back. (laughs) From here, by the way, Wild Bill Donovan wasn't the name of a character in a movie. That's the name of an actual man that we talked about on this podcast. Anyway. 
From here, everything that happens in the prison is pretty much an episode of Orange is the New Black dubbed over in Thai. There's some hazing rituals, some unwanted haircuts, some visits from disappointed parents. Okay, all right. Yeah, at, I can see right? that. I mean, at one point, Paul Walker shows up with a bra stuffed full of money. <laughs> pretty standard shit. It's a good point. And as the girls deal with all that usual prison bullshit, Yankee Hank and his badass wife, Yone, start trying to get them out. And at one point, Hank tracks down another victim of Nick Park's drug smuggling scheme, and she refuses to participate in this whole investigation because she knows that Nick has some friends in high places. And that's not just a drug pun. Nick actually has been greasing the palms of some Thai authorities. So when it becomes clear that doing things by the book isn't going to work out, Hank makes a deal with a corrupt prosecutor. And basically, the girls can go free as long as they're willing to sign a fake confession that, among other things, absolves Nick Parks of any involvement in the crime. Because the people he's colluding with want to keep colluding with him. The girls trust Hank, and they're down with the plan, but the corrupt prosecutor, surprisingly enough, double-crosses them, because that hasn't happened enough times in this movie already, and they learn that there are no pardons for drug offenses. So in a very Wizard of Oz kind of way almost alice then begs the great and powerful king of thailand to let darlene go but there's a catch and that's that alice will have to serve both of their sentences the king of thailand accepts the deal and darlene makes it out of jail and the movie ends with alice in chains no jared not that alice in chains like the character alice is literally in chains and darlene vows to help her get out and then the credits roll and we don't know if she makes it out or not. Basically, the movie is just an hour and 40 minute long PSA to say, don't fucking go to Thailand ever. I mean, that's a very American PSA kind of thing. So there's a whole bunch of nasty shit going on underneath the surface. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Yeah. So this was kind of like you. I, I think that there were my, my consensus is I don't know how I felt about this movie. Like there were definitely moments where I was like, OK, I'm into the story. This is really interesting. But then there's other parts where I'm like, where I just, I didn't know how to feel. So, I don't know. Maybe this will change and help us figure some of this out. But that's why we do the show. So, let's talk about... Is that why? I was wondering why we've been doing this. <laughs> Before we dive too heavily into the inspiration for Broketown Palace, there's a couple of things that we want to get out of the way first. Before we get super into this. So... The first is that I know that the Grateful Dead have a song called Broke Down Palace. In fact, it was the first thing that came up, other than the film, every time I googled the name. I'm going to say it's the first through 50th thing that comes up when yeah. you google the name of this movie. You have to be like Broke Down Palace plus movie plus 1999 plus Claire Danes. Yeah. So the song was written by Jerry Garcia and Robert Hunter and was released on the Dead's 1970 album, American Beauty. See what we did there? Whoa, it's man. Weird. Hold on a second. I'm just doing a full 360 with my head. You know why I'm doing a full 360, Jared? Why? Because it all comes <laughs> back around. As far as I can tell, the similarities between the movie and the song Stop at the Name, similar to the American Beauty album and the film and so on. So moving on to the second thing we'd like to get out of the way, which is that this movie, in every review, in every piece of research we found, every interview, it's being constantly compared to these three movies. Midnight Express from 1978, Red Corner from 1997, and Return to Paradise from 1998. So here's a like very brief rundown of these three movies. 
In Midnight Express, an American college student named Billy Hayes is caught smuggling drugs out of Turkey and thrown into prison. That's really impressive that he could still get the job selling all that infomercial stuff even after being convicted of no, the no, drug no. smuggling. No, no, no. That's that's Billy Mays. Fucking shit. I'm just all over the place today. But wait, there's more. In Red Corner, an American <laughs> attorney on business in China is wrongfully you like that? You <laughs> I do. I do. You got one, Jared, but you did it early. So, <laughs> In Red Corner, an American attorney on business in China is wrongfully arrested and put on trial for murder. With a female defense lawyer from the country, the only key to preserving his in- or to proving his innocence. And in Return to Paradise, two friends must choose whether to help a third friend who was arrested in Malaysia for drug possession. Easy choice. Don't help. <laughs> I'm not sure that any of these three movies have been cited as inspiration for Broke Down Palace, but... Like I said, just about every review, any research we found names at least two of these films, so we have to mention this. So, if you don't believe us, check out this ep- this excerpt from Paul Tatara's review on CNN, which hits all three of these things. Quote, Hollywood just can't seem to let an overripe idea fall from its genre vine, so now they're handing us our umpteenth helping of God-fearing Americans getting locked away in exotic prisons with no hope of release. This time, they're calling the movie Broke Down Palace, because if you don't think up a new title, you get sued. Midnight (laughs) Express, 1978, is the Citizen Kane of this kind of thing, having set the precedent for just how dank and inhumane the situation has to be before it qualifies as hellish. I've written this before because I basically covered this movie before, see Red Corner and Return to Paradise, but the overriding message of these films is that every person who lives in a country other than the United States is mean, corrupt, vengeful, and most of all, dirty. Hate to break it to you there, pal, but most of the people who live here are also mean, corrupt, vengeful, and dirty. Yeah. (laughs) You can't see Jared, but he just did a cheers through the screen with his glass. Interestingly, all of these movies, Broke Down Palace included, fit into something that David Sims at The Atlantic called Asian Tourism Panic Films. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I sure can. So, as this Sims guy puts it in his article, which is titled The Brief and Regrettable Phenomenon of the Asian Tourism Panic Film, quote, 18-year-old American Michael Fay was caned four times in Singapore after pleading guilty to vandalizing cars. The incident was a momentary media phenomenon in the U.S. and served as a wake-up call for Americans on the vast cultural differences in Asian countries that had recently opened up their borders to Western tourism and helped inspire a strange mini-phenomenon in cinema, the Asian Tourism Panic movie. So basically, there was a real-life event that happened back in 1994 with this guy Michael Fay, and after that event happened a bunch of movies like this started coming out. Obviously, the one we talked about from 1978, Midnight Express, was not a result of this because time is linear or a flat circle or whatever you want to say. This is a movie podcast, not a weird metaphysical (laughs) podcast. So I'm just going to continue. Sims went on to write that, quote, the subgenre went as fast as it came, producing only flops and leaving a legacy of cheap gags. But there was a real moment there in the late 90s where thanks to films like Return to Paradise, Broke Down Palace, and The Beach, one could reasonably assume that a trip to Asia would result in cocaine being planted in your bag and your rights being taken away forever. And The Beach is, of course, the 2000 movie with Leonardo DiCaprio, I think. This article also calls out another film that we've already mentioned, which is Midnight Express. And Sim says that that movie practically invented the idea of the Asian tourism panic movie yeah he also writes quote 
Each film was more hysterical than the last, but each leaned on the assumption that American audiences would have slim to no understanding of the legal system of countries like Malaysia or Thailand. As the Iron Curtain fell and more of Asia opened up to visitors in the 1990s, there was a wave of vaguely xenophobic films, like John Abnett's Red Corner, that played on our fear of the unknown. The tourist panic genre swirled in a new element, the lifetime movie twist that it could happen to you. So a couple of caveats here. One is that I'm not sure whether anyone other than this Sims dude has coined this phenomenon as a subgenre, but hey, I think it's clear that most critics do see the connection between these movies, so I think it's worth bringing this up. Um, the second thing here is you'll see that he called out Broke Down Palace specifically in this article. And that's one of the bigger criticisms of this movie is that it falls into this subgenre, whether or not the critics are giving it a name. Yeah, and I would trust, I mean, if you're a film critic and all you're doing all year is you instead of waking up and going to your nine to five job and sitting at a desk all day, if your nine to five job is going to the movies and you're sitting there and you're going, okay, this is very similar to that one. And this one, I'm going to trust your judgment on that, at least somewhat. So that makes sense if people are drawing comparisons between these four films in particular. It absolutely does. And there, there are articles out there online on travel blogs and things like that that are like lessons learned from Broke Down Palace. Jesus. What to do if you travel to Thailand, right? So like people were taking this shit seriously. People didn't look at this as a work of fiction. They're like, oh, fuck, this is real. Yeah. So, despite the fact that it's always mentioned in the same breath as three other movies, Broke Down Palace is technically an original story that was conceived by the film's producer and co-writer Adam Fields. And I, I would believe that it's an original story. It's not doing, like, shot for shot every single thing that's in these other films, but there's some obviously some similarities. So, Adam Fields began producing movies in the early 80s and worked with a handful of different production companies, including his own firm called Adam Fields Productions, which he founded in 1984. And he started a film marketing company called Preview Tech in 1990, and he didn't return to producing until the mid to late 90s. So, in 1997, Fields reestablished his own production company at 20th Century Fox, where he produced a film called Ravenous, which starred Guy Pearce and David Arquette. After that, his next film would go on to be Broke Down Palace, and that would be the eighth film that Fields produced, but it would also become the 42-year-old's first and thus far only writing credit. Okay. Yeah. So at the basic level, at the most basic level, Fields was inspired to write Broke Down Palace by his own experiences traveling as a teenager in the 70s. You mean he was a teenage girl in the 1970s and he got arrested? <laughs> so apparently Fields had quite the travel bug as a kid. But as a cocky American teenager, he also had a certain degree of, quote, self-assurance and naive arrogance. So whenever he got the itch to travel somewhere new, such as London or Amsterdam or Morocco, he would say to his parents, I'm 16, I'm grown up, I ride the New York subways, what could happen? Okay, there are fucking rats that know how to navigate the New York subway, so understanding how to ride the subway by yourself isn't that big of an achievement. And Adam. they can get a slice of pizza. I see what you did. Have there. you ever seen that video? I see what you did there. Yeah. 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 yeah dude, back. that video inspired a whole chain of children's entertainment. <laughs> I was about to say, yeah, Chuck he, E. Cheese. He, oh, no. I was going to say he brings it back to Leonardo and to uh, Michelangelo and all those because they live under the subway. There are just so many different ways Turtle that power. this bit could go. <laughs> so he brings that up because you can certainly see the attitude reflected in Claire Dance's character in the movie. And... I'll pass this off to you, but 
I understand that Fields was also inspired by numerous other stories that he'd heard about American travelers, particularly women that were being arrested and jailed for drug offenses overseas, specifically in Thailand. Yeah, so it turns out that convincing unsuspecting Americans to either wittingly or unwittingly transport drugs overseas was not that hard to do, and therefore it was pretty common in the 90s, and honestly pretty much every other decade too, including today, because this is still going on. To really understand how these stories inspired Broke Down Palace, I want to talk a little bit about the overarching situation surrounding international drug trafficking. And then I want to talk about one specific story that may have been the direct inspiration for the movie. So, let's start with the overarching situation. Back in the 90s, there were a lot of countries where it was relatively easy to buy drugs. I mean, there still are, but we're not going to keep making that disclaimer every five seconds. So, we're talking in past tense for now, okay? For the U.S., most of those drugs were purchased in South America and brought into the United States. But in Europe, most of those countries were located in Southeast Asia, which makes sense. Drugs are typically easier to obtain in the countries where they are produced. But, interestingly, many of the countries where it was easy to buy drugs also had surprisingly strict drug smuggling laws. For example, in 1999, you could receive the death penalty in Malaysia for smuggling drugs. Jesus! And several people from Australia and the UK have actually been executed in Malaysia for this exact reason. Wow. So they take this shit very seriously. Yeah. One of the reasons why these drug-producing nations had such strict laws about trafficking is that many of them were under outside pressure, mainly from the U.S., to crack down on the export of drugs. And because this pressure was being imposed by the U.S., many of the officials responsible for reinforcing anti-smuggling laws were very excited when they could apprehend mules from America. Mm -hmm. Because basically they're like, you're putting these fucking laws on us, we're going to get you for it. Right? It's like if you're a California driver, as soon as you pass the border into Oregon, you're way more likely to get a speeding ticket. Because they they just want to get you. you Yeah, you're you're an out-of-towner. They were specifically looking for Americans who were serving as drug mules. And here's the thing. American smugglers were pretty goddamn easy to nab, especially compared to the local traffickers who knew the laws and were more capable of getting around them. So according to this guy, Tony Wheeler, who is the founder of the popular Lonely Planet travel guidebooks, you may have read some of those. Many of the people who get caught trying to sneak drugs are Americans who are traveling overseas for the first time. And Wheeler says that these inexperienced travelers, quote, are often on their first overseas trip. They're people who feel it's safe, but then get themselves into trouble, end quote. On top of that, some corrupt law enforcement officials have been known to plant drugs on unwary American tourists because, again, they want to get you, right? So once these hapless American tourists are nabbed, they're often lost to the foreign prison system. And that's because U.S. officials can't do much to help you Once you've been taken into custody, or at least they couldn't back in the 90s. I don't know if it's changed now. So this was basically a win-win situation for the foreign governments making the arrests. Because A, they got the credit for complying with the U.S. mandate. But B, they got to throw up basically a big middle finger to the U.S. at the same time. (laughs) So back in 99... Uh, Maria Rudensky, who is a spokesperson for the State Department's Bureau of Consular Affairs, said that there were somewhere between 2,700 and 3,000 Americans in prison in foreign countries. And of those, one-third were charged with drug-related offenses. Most of those prisons were in Mexico, with several in Germany, Canada, Japan, and the UK. But Thailand was the sixth most imprisoned country on that list. Hmm. So this is based on a real thing, right? 
So speaking of tourists being arrested in Thailand, I want to tell you a story about one person in particular who may have been the inspiration behind Broke Down Palace, and that is Patricia Cahill. Okay. So Patricia Cahill was a British teenager who got arrested in July of 1990 for trying to smuggle heroin from Thailand to Amsterdam. So, so far we've got heroin and Thailand, two of the main similarities between this <laughs> yes. real life situation and the movie. Uh, Cahill, who was 17 years old at the time, and her friend Karen Smith, who was 18, traveled to Thailand for a holiday after a British man that they met in a Birmingham nightclub offered to pay for their flights. So this is very similar to the way that Nick Parks offered to pay for Alice and Darlene's flights to Hong Kong in the movie. Cahill's parents didn't know that she'd left the UK, and they thought that she'd gone to Scotland for her vacation. So again, this is reflected in the movie when Alice and Darlene's parents think they're traveling to Hawaii which is, of course, still within the United States, right? Once the girls landed at the Bangkok International Airport, authorities searched their baggage and discovered that there was, at that time, the largest amount of heroin ever recovered in a single haul. Wow. The girls had been carrying 32 kilograms, which is just over 70 pounds, of powdered heroin hidden in shampoo bottles, coffee containers, and biscuit tins. The street value of the drugs was about 4 million pounds, or just about 5.4 million U.S. dollars. Wow. Adjusted for inflation, that's just under a billion dollars worth of heroin in today's money. So that's a lot of fucking Jesus. heroin. Uh, needless to say, the girls were both arrested, and throughout their trial, they continued to claim that the drugs had been planted on them and that they didn't know they'd been carrying anything illegal. Again, this is pretty much exactly what happens with Alice and Darlene in the movie. At their trial in December of 1990... Both girls were found guilty and sentenced to 15 years in prison, which is actually kind of lucky because drug trafficking is punishable by death in Thailand. But because Cahill was a minor, she could not legally be executed. At this point, the British government went to unusual measures to ensure that Patricia Cahill was released, including a petition for a pardon from the King of Thailand to the Thai Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Again, this is very similar to the way that Hank and Jan fought to get Alice and Darlene released in the movie. Yeah. Both girls served three years in prison before being given a royal pardon after pressure from the British government. And I couldn't find anything that confirms whether or not Fields was familiar with the story when he wrote Broke Down Palace, but it seems to me that the similarities are way too many to be considered just a coincidence. Like, I, I feel like the movie has to be inspired by this story. Yeah, I, I feel that. And yeah, but even if Fields wasn't familiar with the story of Cahill and Smith, which we're pretty sure he was, but again, no confirmation— he did receive a bunch of first-hand accounts from people in similar situations. And Fields was so fascinated with the stories that he'd heard about American women being incarcerated overseas for drug offenses that he spent months researching drug trafficking and the Thai prison system. And when that wasn't enough, he actually hopped on a plane to Thailand to check it out for himself. While he was there, he interviewed 15 American girls, women? I mean, he... He, I don't know. He calls them girls, but we don't know their ages. So we'll just use his terminology. He interviewed 15 American girls who were all serving life sentences in Thai prisons. And here's what he had to say about his 15 interview subjects. Quote, I think they were all guilty, but they were guilty of being poor, desperate, naive, and foolish enough to be taken advantage of by manipulative drug smugglers like R. Nick Parks. And they were all recruited by some guy who made them big promises. Fields went on to say that, quote, 10 of the 15 girls out there were single moms. One of them was a girl from the South Bronx who had never been to Manhattan. She told me she never even had a vacation. And despite being naive or foolish, Fields did get the impression that most of his interview subjects, quote, knew they were smuggling something. But some admitted that they thought they'd just be smuggling jade, not heroin. 
Interesting. Okay. So he's he's talking to the real people down there in the trenches then. So he does all this research. He gets all this information, interviews the 15 girls. With all this done, the interviews behind him, this leads us into the pitch in the cell. Fields finally knew what story he wanted to tell by this point, and he knew he wanted to organize that story around the following premise. Quote, What if the worst thing imaginable happened to you, and you were possibly portrayed by your best friend? And just how far would you go to save that friend? Yeah, that pretty much sums up the movie. Yeah. But coming up with the story, as G.I. Joe would say, is only half the battle. And Fields <laughs> still needed a little bit of help turning his premise into a screenplay. So that's where David Arata came into the picture. While David Arata was technically an unproduced screenwriter when Fields approached him back in the mid to late 90s, he was a known entity at Fox. Because, several years earlier, the studio had paid big money for a spec script called Double Fault, which Arata had co-written with another screenwriter. And while that movie hadn't gotten made, Arata had remained on Fox's radar, and that's likely how he got hooked up with Fields. And when Fields approached Arata about Broke Down Palace, Arata was immediately interested in working on the script. As he put it, quote, I was attracted to the project because of the friendship aspect. Everybody wants a best friend. You see a four-year-old meet somebody for 15 minutes at a playground, then run back to his parents and say, that's my best friend. But it takes a long time to learn how to be a best friend. Alice and Darlene in this movie, who at 18 think they're best friends, learn how to be best friends through adversity. In an effort to get into the same creative mindset as Fields, Arata also hopped on a plane to Thailand and interviewed American prisoners of his own. He spoke with many of the same prisoners that Fields had spoken to during his expansive interviews, as well as a few new ones. But unlike Fields, who felt that many of the women he'd spoken to were guilty, Arata took more of a glass-half-full stance, asserting that, quote, some were innocent, definitely. So he was willing to be a little more direct about that. Yeah. Um, one thing that Arata and Fields did agree on, though, was that Broke Down Palace shouldn't really be a story about innocence or guilt. Instead, it should be, quote, a journey of self-discovery that transcends guilt or innocence. It's a story in which heroism and redemption and ultimately a great act of valor emerge from the unlikeliest of sources, end quote. Yeah, so with their ducks in a row and a solid draft of the screenplay in hand, the movie quickly found a home at Arata's home, Fox, So, which shouldn't really be a surprise, like we just said. The studio set a budget of $23 million and planned to release the movie through their Fox 2000 label. Fox 2000 was the sister studio of the larger film studio 20th Century Studios and Searchlight Pictures. They specialized in producing independent films in mid-range releases that largely that largely targeted underserved groups. Um, yeah, there's a lot of great uh, Fox Searchlight pictures now. Um, now it was time to find a director. And before too long, the studio thought they had. Yeah, man. So originally this dude named Carl Franklin was signed on to direct Broke Down Palace. He used to be an actor, became a director. Pretty typical Hollywood story. Franklin had a couple of directing credits in the late 80s and early 90s, but he really broke into the film world in 1992. That was the year he made One False Move, which was a gothic thriller set in the American South starring Billy Bob Thornton and Bill Paxton. I kind of want to watch that. It sounds very intriguing. Sounds good. Uh, it was a sleeper hit, so other people thought it was good too, and it propelled Franklin to relevancy in Hollywood. Uh, he earned critical respect again in 1995 for his film Devil in a Blue Dress, which starred Denzel Washington. And riding that wave of critical acclaim, Franklin was poised for another hit, and Fox was quick to snatch him up for their next movie, which was, of course, Broke Down Palace. Franklin officially signed on to direct the movie in 1997, but that wouldn't last too long. And that's because, just a few months later, in June, Franklin pulled out of the project. 
And here's what happened. Apparently, hmm. Fox and Franklin disagreed about which actress should have the leading role in the movie. Interesting. And when yeah, and and so Fox did what studios do, and they flexed their big studio muscles, and they told Franklin that he needed to hire their preferred actress. And Franklin decided that he'd just rather not make the movie. So he left, and he ended up directing One True Thing instead, which was an adaptation of the novel of the same name by Anna Quindlen. Yeah. So, ironically, the actress that Fox insisted on hiring also ended up leaving the movie. So the studio sort of shot themselves in the foot on that one in a couple of different ways. But we're getting ahead of ourselves, and we're talking about casting, and we're not <laughs> going to get to that for a couple more minutes. So hang tight there, fam. Yeah. So with Franklin out the door, Fox needed to find another ass to fill the director's seat. And that ass belonged to Jonathan Kaplan. That ass. <laughs> that, might, that might be the only time that Jonathan Kaplan and that ass were used in the same sense. Probably. Uh, Jonathan Kaplan's directing career started in 1972. And looking at his IMDb, I don't know if we've ever seen someone with so many movie titles that sound like they could be pornos. But <laughs> they aren't. Dude, it's so funny. There are so many. So, if you want some examples, how about Night Call Nurses? That's a porn for sure. The Student Teacher. Student Teachers doesn't sound that bad. I don't know. That's literally streaming on browsers right now. Okay. Uh, the Hustler of Muscle Beach. That one definitely does. Yep. Uh, Love Field. Yeah, that's, of course, the porn adaptation of Angels in the Outfield. I was going to say Field of Dreams. Um, yeah, it could be either one. Bad Girls. Absolutely. And reform schoolgirl. Hmm. So, in addition to directing a bunch of not-porns, Kaplan also... <laughs> this sounds like something out of Arrested Development. Oh, yeah, he's directing a not-porn film. Ron Howard comes on. Job was directing a not-porn, which was, of course... No. Um, so, Kaplan also directed music videos for Rod Stewart, Barbara Streisand, and John Mellencamp. But Kaplan's biggest bona fides came from his experience directing some of Hollywood's most notable leading ladies and helping them achieve award show recognition. Specifically, Kaplan got a lot of credit for Jodie Foster's Academy Award-winning performance in The Accused in 1998, Michelle Pfeiffer's Oscar nomination for Love Field in 1992, and Bonnie Bedelia's Golden Globe-nominated performance in Heart Like a Wheel in 1983. This idea that Kaplan was some sort of guru at pulling strong performances out of his female stars takes me back a little bit to our episode on The World Is Not Enough in Episode 8, if you remember that. There, that was another movie where the studio specifically wanted to, quote, find a director who is capable of eliciting strong performances from women. So, in that case, they went with Michael Apted, who earned Sissy Spacek, Sigourney Weaver and Jodie Foster Oscar nominations for Coal Miner's Daughter, Gorillas in the Mist, and Nell, respectively. And when we recorded that episode, Jared, I said, and I'm going to quote myself, which is the douchiest thing you can do, but I'm going to do it anyway. Quote, I think it's worth noting this attitude in Hollywood that the merit of an actress's performance is directly related to the skill of her male director, but that's an argument for another time, end quote. And I, I, I'm thinking now might be the right time to have that argument. Hmm. Because we're talking about two different directors here, Jonathan Kaplan and Michael Apted. Both of them are credited with elevating Jodie Foster's performance, right? But here's the thing. The common denominator in that scenario is Jodie Jody Foster. Foster. So maybe, <laughs> just maybe, she performed well because she's a fucking good actress yeah. and not because of the man who was telling her what to do behind the camera. You mean Academy Award winning, also director and screenwriter Jodie Foster? Yeah, I don't know. 
right? So both Kaplan and Apted are regarded in this category of being a, quote, a woman's director or a male director who has a reputation for directing strong performances by women. And I was doing some research about this because it pisses me off. And it's nothing new. In fact, the moniker dates back as far as Hollywood's golden age of cinema, with perhaps one of the first examples being off-forgotten director George Cukor. Okay? So George Cukor was a gay man who frequently directed melodramas and romantic comedies. And he is often credited with elevating the performances of female actresses, including Catherine Hepburn, Greta Garbo, Judy Garland, and more. And if you heard those names and were like, wow, those are really impressive names. Yeah, they fucking were because they were great actresses. Yeah. Every single one of them. Yep. There's an article about this on Brightwall Dark Room written by Kate Blowers. And I pulled a quote from it because I think it describes what I'm talking about really well. And here's the quote. Initially, the idea that Cooker was a woman's director was used as a boon, a selling point that distinguished him from other male directors of the era. And it's true that he was able to draw out exceptional performances from even the most difficult mannered actresses. However, so superb was Cooker at eliciting career-defining performances from iconic actresses, and lest we forget actors, that his contribution as a director is often considered secondary to the film's central performances. His categorization as a, quote, woman's director, end quote, could have harmed his perceived longevity, and it seems undeniable that this compartmentalization stemmed in part from a particularly highbrow form of homophobia. After all, was Cougar not, as a gay man, inherently better suited to directing films for and about women? End quote. Hmm. And the reason that I wanted to read this, and the reason that I think this is a good quote, is because it kind of speaks to the underlying thing that's bothering me about the whole women's director thing. Right, so here, here's what I feel, okay. right? I don't think one gender produces better directors than another. Agreed. I don't think a person could be inherently better at directing one gender over another. Mm -hmm. I don't think someone's sexual orientation has an effect on their ability to direct someone of any gender, although the biases of the people being directed may have an effect. Okay. And I think good actors are good actors, regardless of their gender or their director. You can have good performances from individuals in movies that are directed terribly, and vice versa. Absolutely. And so, I, so I think this quote from Kate Blowers like puts that all into perspective, yeah. and also shows how long this has been something going on in Hollywood. That was definitely a tangent. It's all good. And I'm gonna go ahead and conclude my TED talk at this point. <laughs> it's all so good. So we can get back to the topic at hand, which is that Jonathan Kaplan was a director with a reputation for pulling strong performances out of his female stars, and as such. He was always on the hunt for unique female-driven projects, and I think he found one with Broke Down Palace. Yeah, so to understand more about why Kaplan was attracted to Broke Down Palace, we're going to share a direct quote with you from Kaplan. Quote, You have this relationship between two young women that I've never seen on the screen before, and I just thought the script treated it with so much respect, treated them with so much respect. And I also think that when one girl is incredibly needy and doesn't want to let go, and the other one is ready to go out into the world, it's a major rite of passage that's almost a death, and a very compelling story. So in Fox's eyes, Kaplan was also a good choice for Broke Down Palace, because he was experienced at telling stories that focused on friendship and human relationships, even when the subject matter surrounding those friendships were dark. Again, we can look at 1988's The Accused for an example. In fact, Kaplan himself used The Accused to contextualize his approach to Broke Down Palace. He said, quote, The accused involved the victim The accused involved the issue of gang rape from the victim's point of view. Jodie Foster was the victim, Kelly McGillis prosecuted the case on her behalf. And this was at a time, the Reagan years, when it was sort of trendy to blame the victim. 
As a director, I didn't say, I'm making a movie about the blame the victim syndrome. I said, I'm making a movie about these two women and how they became friends and more than friends in order to save each other's lives. Similarly here, with Broke Down Palace, my focus is on telling the story of these two young women in an entertaining and truthful way. If the movie serves as a warning to people not to carry drugs across foreign borders, that's fine. But that's not why I'm making this movie. I think that's a really cool perspective. Yeah. Like, I, I worry that there's something to be lost about, like, purposefully not looking at the underlying issues. But at the same time, like, making sure that the story is focused on people and the relationships between those people, it, it seems like those underlying themes would come out stronger Yeah, by doing that. I so, agree. I don't know how successful that was in either of these movies. I watched Broke Down Palace, and I don't feel that it was particularly successful. Um, and I haven't seen the accused, but I do think that's a really cool lens for a director to have. Absolutely. It's, uh, yeah, I, I think that that's the best way that it could be said. It's if somebody walks away from this thinking this one thing, that's fine. That's part of the story, but this is the reason that I'm making it. And it's focusing on the relationships. It's a good effort. I'll, I'll say that. I agree. And in any case, Fox seemed to agree as well because they brought Kaplan on board. And so now we just needed to find or at least finalize our cast. Awesome. So do you want to start off or do you want me to go? You can go first this week. I always cover the, <laughs> the, the big one. All right, cool. So let's talk about Claire Danes, who plays Alice Morano. So while Danes got her first credited acting role for a short called Dreams of Love in 1990, she didn't really make a name for herself until 1994. <laughs> That year, she was cast as Angela Chase on My So-Called Life, which won her a Golden Globe Award for Best Actress and a Primetime Emmy nomination for Outstanding Lead Actress in a Drama Series. That same year, she made her film debut as Beth March in Gillian Armstrong's version of Little Women. She appeared in about 10 other feature films leading up to 1999, including Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet, where she starred alongside Leonardo DiCaprio and won a Blockbuster Entertainment Award for Favorite Actress in a Romance, she also got an MTV Movie Award for this film. Ooh, one of the little spaceman guys. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of fun. The English dub version of Princess Mononoke. The, no shit. Yeah. The Rainmaker and Billy August's version of Les Miserables. And we'll see her again in 1999 alongside Giovanna, Giovanni Ribisi in Scott Silver's The Mod Squad. And let's hope Giovanni Ribisi's using his actual voice this time. I really hope so. After this film... Interestingly, she didn't appear in anything for three years after Broke Down Palace, and that's kind of a long time in Hollywood years. Yeah, you'll remember from our End of Days episode that people were freaking the fuck out because Arnold had a three-year gap. Yeah. So, she also appears in The Hours, Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines. Speak of the devil. <laughs> the family. Or I guess he played. He didn't play the devil. Anyway, you fuck, you understand. Yeah. The Family Stone, Master of None, Portlandia, and, of course, Homeland, which I think is her probably her biggest role. Uh, I have a wife um, and two kids <laughs> who I love. That's my favorite quote from Homeland. It doesn't make any fucking sense, but I think it's hilarious. In 2000... <laughs> so in 2012, Time named her one of the 100 most influential people in the world. She was awarded a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in 2015. And personally, I'm surprised to see that she only has 42 credits on IMDb. But it feels like she's very famous. Like like I said, Homeland's probably her most famous acting role right now, and that's got 96 episodes, so that's def that definitely kind of pumps that number up. Right. Whenever you see an actor who has like a long-running TV series, 
it's kind of skewed because it looks like they're not in very much stuff, but then they're in like 500 episodes. And then you're like, something. oh shit, they've been on TV like every week for like a yeah. year, for like three years straight. So, exactly. They're constantly acting. Yeah. So it's like when Brian Cranston, and he had a bunch of acting credits before that, but it's like when they're like, oh, Breaking Bad, he hasn't done anything since 2012. Oh, there's like five seasons of this. Got it. Okay. Oh, he stars yeah, in every one got- of them. <laughs> <laughs> He's probably got 500 credits alone just from Malcolm in the Middle and Breaking Bad. Easily, yes. So, a couple little casting stories. Danes was simultaneously attracted to and freaked out by the script. That's exactly how I feel about you, Jerry. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, so, Danes read the script for the first time uh, when she was on a press tour for Romeo and Juliet, and she was sitting in some big palatial room at the Ritz Hotel in Paris. She was 18 at the time, and she said that when she first read Broke Down Palace, the script petrified me, and it kind of repulsed me, like it really made me shake. Then I realized I loved it. Again, Jared, exactly how I feel about you. Aw. What she liked about it specifically was the friendship between the two main characters, especially because her character was actually her age. Dane said, quote, I think what was really important to me was that this is a love story about two friends between two girls. There are so few chances to tell a story, a real powerful story, that focuses on two female leads. The two characters are extremely dependent on each other. Each fills a void that exists in the other, and they complete each other. Very sweet. Yeah. And so in some ways, the movie's theme of independence was also something that Danes was going through in real life as well. We'd said that they were both the characters were both the same age, so that was kind of like a, a connecting moment for her. But in the movie, Alice's trip to Thailand is pretty much the first time she'd ever been away from her father. And in real life, Claire Danes was, quote, separating from my mom at the time. So Alice is separating from her father. Claire is separating from her mother in real life. She went on to explain that, quote, this is the first movie that I decided to do as an adult. And it's the first time my mother's not been on the set. It's a really potent period of your life. And the first part of the movie is sort of an ode to that initial rush of freedom. So everything that she did before this movie, she had her mom on set the whole time. It's what I'm assuming. I don't even know. That if, seems pretty wild. I don't. Well, that seems like I've heard crazier stuff about it, Hollywood, and like that doesn't seem too far fetched. But it could also mean like if she's living in Los Angeles and she's near family, or can go and drive and go around them, or even if you're shooting in the United States, you're still not super far away you're not over international waters so it's like you still have some sort of closeness so going away for the first time away from family but then not only going away but being overseas and at 18 or 19 years old that's a lot for the first time so i can understand that so she well she may not have been on set for everything family could have been nearby so at least that's that's what i'm getting from it so who do we got next up next, we have Kate Beckinsale as Darlene Davis. And it's a good thing that we have Kate Beckinsale because if she was Kate Beckinsale Price, I don't know if they would have cast her. She might have been too expensive. But because she was Kate Beckinsale. Jesus. Yes, it is a cheap joke, Jared, because if she was Beckinsale Price, it'd be an expensive joke. That's what I'm trying to say. Anyway, before 1999, Kate Beckinsale made her small screen debut in 1991 in an ITV adaptation of P.D. James's Devices and Desires. The following year, she starred in a 30-minute short called Rachel's Dream on England's famous Channel 4. She appeared in the pilot for an ITV detective series called Anna Lee in 1993. So if you're not detecting a pattern yet, she was on a lot of British television. Yes. 
That same year, Beckinsale got her big screen break in Kenneth Branagh's adaptation of Much Ado About Nothing. So again, we have someone getting their big break in a Shakespeare thing. She appeared in a few more TV and theatrical release movies leading up to 1999, but her career didn't really take off until after Broke Down Palace. So, after 1999, Beckinsale's career really kicked into high gear when she starred in Pearl Harbor in 2001. From there, she went on to star in Serendipity, Underworld, Van Helsing, The Aviator, Underworld Evolution, Underworld Rise of the Lycans, Total Recall, The Elder Scrolls Online, which is kind of a cool one, Love and Friendship, and Underworld Blood Wars. She also starred in a 2012 comedy short called Republicans Get in My Vagina, (laughs) which aired on Funny or Die. And she's appearing in a movie called Jolt that comes out later this year, which I can only assume is the sequel to Bolt. Bolt, which is another movie where you have a child actress whose mother is on set at all times. It all comes back around you. That that one's a little different because that that focuses on the dog. Don't you dare tell me that what I'm doing is a stretch. I'm going to tell you some (laughs) casting stories about Kate Beckinsale now. Cool. And you can think about what you've done. As usual, (laughs) there are some other actresses who were up for the role of Darlene in this movie, particularly Jennifer Love Hewitt who had the role but lost it because of scheduling conflicts. So I'm assuming that Jennifer Love Hewitt is the actress that Fox insisted play this role, which is why Franklin left. That's my hunch, but I can't find anything to connect those dots besides my own ballpoint pen, and we all know how reliable that is. Apparently, Liv Tyler was also up for this role, but she didn't get it. So womp womp. Yeah. Uh, like Claire Danes, Kate Beckinsale was attracted to the role because she liked the friendship dynamics in Arata's script. Specifically, Beckinsale liked how interdependent her character and Danes' character were. At the time, she said she thought the role was complex, quote, because it's like having an opportunity to play two parts. In order to really understand my role, I have to really understand Claire's. It was interesting rehearsing it, being asked, what do you think Alice would do here? And that's kind of a cool mentality. I haven't really heard anybody describe a movie that way yet. Yeah. And I like, like the building fact that she's the character. thinking about it that way. Yeah, exactly. Um, she also liked the fact that the script didn't, quote, shy away from the tensions and frictions in the Alice Darlene relationship. And again, I think that's really important because a lot of these teenage girl movies in the 90s were very much like positive only. Yeah. You know what I mean? You didn't have Jennifer's body yet. People were just like happy-go-lucky all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, Most importantly, though, Beckinsale was attracted to the fact that the movie didn't seem like a typical girls movie. In an interview, she said, quote, I didn't read it and say, oh, great, girls movie. It just felt kind of human. If it was a feminist flag-waving movie, I wouldn't have been quite as interested. Hmm. And that's kind of a weird political comment that I don't really understand or feel like dissecting to be 100 yeah. percent honest but <laughs> something weird about that so uh who's up next jared uh next up is the greatest president we ever had bill pullman uh playing hank green <laughs> hey look what i got here who's your favorite president bill pullman today we fight for our independence Fantastic. so before this movie bill pullman taught theater at the state university of new york at delhi and served as an adjunct professor at montana state university school of film and photography in bozeman montana but i guess which is where all the best actors come from yeah but because i guess a student saw something in him because they were like you should get out of here and you should go try out for movies and it worked because he did and here we are so other than a small part on a single episode of cagney and lacy in 1986 Pullman's first big-time Hollywood role was in the movie Ruthless People starring Danny DeVito and Bette Midler. 
His very next movie was Spaceballs in 1987. Talk about going from zero to six. That's a huge jump. So leading up to 1999, he also appeared in a pretty good run of films. Newsies, A League of Their Own, Sleepless in Seattle, Wyatt Earp, While You Were Sleeping, Casper, and of course, what I just mentioned, Independence Day. We'll see him again in 1999 for the romantic suspense comedy, History is Made at Night, and one of the movies that I'm really excited to cover, Lake Placid. I cannot fucking wait I've, to talk about Lake Placid. I've never it seen it, and I'm best. very excited to see it. Jared, it is amazing. <laughs> well, Jaws in a lake with a fucking alligator. That's awesome. So after 1999, Bill Pullman starred in Titan A.E., The Grudge, Scary Movie 4, Bottle Shock, the TV show 1600 Pen, Red Sky, American Ultra, Independence Day Resurgence, and a TV series called The Sinner, and his most recent movie came out in 2020, a a drama romance called The High Note. So, one little casting story about Bill Pullman. According to him, one of the main reasons he agreed to play the expat lawyer in Broke Down Palace was that he'd recently spent time around a bunch of real-life expatriates in the Philippines. Here's what he had to say. Quote, Last fall when I was in Guadalcanal doing Terry Malick's The Thin Red Line, I was seeing all these expatriates we were using as extras, and I got really curious about what it was like to live outside of your own country. A few weeks after the shoot, he got the offer to play Hank Green, and that played right into his curiosity. He bases on his observations and based on his observations during a shoot in the Philippines, he had a pretty solid idea of how he wanted to play Hank. Quote, I think of Hank as being almost philosophically disappointed in America. Same. And then after well, movie- that's interesting because the one Hank that I think, sorry, that's interesting because the one Hank that I can think of is not disappointed in America at all. That's why I want them to reboot King of the Hill because I feel like it would make a really interesting like. See what happened now. His oh my god. Anyway, continue. Anyway, that that's for another tangent. We can write that that series and pitch it to Mike Judge later. And then after moving to Thailand and marrying a Thai woman and adapting to Thai culture and kind of a Buddhist-oriented world as still being frustrated. So, yeah. And speaking of his wife in the film, who do we got next? Up next, we have Jacqueline Kim as Yon Green. Uh, so here's what she was up to before 1999. After graduating from drama school at DePaul University in Chicago, she acted in a bunch of plays like The Seagull and The Triumph of Love. She appeared in a TV movie in 1989 and then played Jane in 1992's The Mighty Ducks. But she remained primarily a stage actor until 1993 when she moved to L.A. to pursue her film career. After she relocated, she quickly landed major roles in two films, Star Trek Generations and Barry Levinson's film Disclosure. After that, she appeared in Volcano with Tommy Lee Jones and had a two-episode arc on Xena the Warrior Princess. So there you go. Nice. Um, After 1999, she appeared in a handful of other movies, none of which I've heard of. Those were The Operator, The Hollywood Sign, Charlotte Sometimes, Red Doors, and Advantageous, which she also wrote and produced. Uh, she also appeared. Fuck. She also appeared in a few TV shows like ER, The West Wing, and Doubt. And her last acting role was in 2017. And I don't think she's really been up to much since then. So that's all we know. We don't have any casting stories for her. We're ready to move on to the next person, who is Lou Diamond Phillips as Roy Knox. Good old LDP. I love Lou Diamond Phillips. I saw um, uh, Stand and Deliver recently again, and he's just 
fantastic. But my favorite thing about Lou Diamond Phillips is that the space between the bottom of his nose and the top of his upper lip is three and a half inches. And there is a Mariana's trench just leading straight down from the bridge of his nose to the tip of his lip. It's not the first thing I would jump to, but okay. <laughs> so Just saying. His... Every time I look at Lou Diamond Phillips, I'm like, there's that fucking lip ridge, bro. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's like a sexual thing. I have no idea, but like my eyes are drawn to we it. We learn something new about ourselves every day, my friend. So Lou, we really do. Lou Diamond Phillips' first role was an uncredited appearance in a 1984 TV movie called Time Bomb. In the mid-80s, he was in a couple of other movies and appeared on episodes of Dallas and Miami Vice. But his, So tiny TV shows is what you're exactly. saying? Exactly. But his first big break came when he was offered the starring role of Richie Valens in the 1987 film La Bamba. From there, his career took off with roles in Stand and Deliver, Dakota, Young Guns, The Big Hit, as well as several other movies and TV shows. But Phillips wasn't just making a name for himself on screen. In 1996, he made his Broadway debut as the King in in Rodgers and Hammerstein's The King and I, for which he won a Theater World Award and was nominated for both a Tony Award and a Drama Desk Award for his performance. He was also the singer of the LA-based rock band The Pipe Fitters. We'll see him again in 1999 for Bats, a horror sci-fi thriller about genetically mutated bats that escape, and it's up to a bat expert and the local sheriff to stop them. I'm so excited for this movie. I'm sorry, what? And if this gets into our realm with TV films, depending on if it's available or not, um, a Hallmark Channel movie called In a Class of His Own. After 1999, he's been in more shit that we can list. So here's a few of the highlights. This includes movie and television shows and video games. Picking up the pieces, Route 666, 24, Hollywood Homicide, the X-Men Legends video games, the pilot of a failed Aquaman show, which I'm very curious to see. No shit. Lone Rider, Numbers, Stargate Universe, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Longmire, and most recently Prodigal Son. And he was also in the music video for Radioactive by Imagine Dragons, and he directed an, a- an episode of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. in 2019. What the fuck is he not doing? It would have been faster to just say what he hasn't That's done. a great career, though. That's, like, a lot. It's keeping it very interesting and very fun. It, he really mixes it up. Yeah. Who do we got up next? Up next, we have Daniel LePayne as Nick Parks. So, this is our Australian smooth-talking drug smuggler. <laughs> Before 1999, Daniel Payne graduated from the National Institute of Dramatic Art in 1992. He started acting on TV as early as 1989, but he got his break in 1994 for playing the South African swimmer David Van Arkel in P.J. Hogan's Muriel's Wedding. Interestingly, he was in a movie called 1999, but that was in 1997, so I don't know if we should cover that or not. It feels like we could squeak it in on a technicality. I feel like we could. We could do like a special episode of that one, so... We'll see what happens with that. I'm curious. He had a handful of other roles in 1998, but nothing you'd be likely to recognize. And we're going to see him again in 1999 for Brad Kane's Say You'll Be Mine, Sam Miller's Elephant Juice, and Bruce Beresford's Double Jeopardy. Sweet. After 1999, he was in a bunch of random shit, and you might recognize him from Last Chance Harvey, Shanghai, Zero Dark Thirty, Jack the Giant Slayer, a Globe Theater live recording of The Merchant of Venice, as well as a bunch of other theater stuff that hasn't been recorded. Uh, Forza Horizon 3, 
the fun car racing video game, or Black Mirror, which is honestly probably the one that you've all seen. Yeah. Uh, we don't have any casting stories about Daniel either, so he can just fuck right off. We do have a little bit of additional cast we want to talk about. Um, the first of those folks is Tom Amandis, who played Doug Davis. We've got Amy Graham as Beth Ann Gardner. We've got John Doe as Bill Morano. And yeah, you heard that right. The guy's <laughs> name is John Doe. So imagine trying to Google that motherfucker. We have Kay Tong Lim as Chief Detective Jagrit. We've got Beulah Kuo as Guard Vali. We have Henry O oh as Emissary to the Crown. Bonnie Turpin as the Jamaican Prisoner. Amanda de Cadene as the English Prisoner. And if we butcher any of these names, please forgive us. We've got Inthira Chirinpura as Prisoner Shub. And finally, we've got Paul Walker, who has an uncredited cameo as one of the girl's boyfriends in the opening moments of the film. And he's later seen... Uh, he's also in one scene later in the film when he's visiting the girls in prison, to which I said, oh shit, that's Paul Walker. What is he doing in this movie? Is that what you said? Because what I did was pause the movie, light a candle, no. and then go, it's been a long day Rest in peace. without you, my friend. Yeah. And I'll tell you about it when I see Damn. That's what I did. Oh. That scene in the last Fast movie where he takes the exit. Oh, God. Oh, God. It's, it's, it's hard to watch. I can't do it. I can't, I can't do yeah. it. I can't even talk about it. Yeah. I, just, I can't talk about so, it. So now that we've got our cast, we've got our director, we've got a story written, let's get to filming this thing. Who gave you the narcotics? I want to see an attorney. It was your girlfriend's idea? I am an American citizen. I have the right to an attorney. Oh, yes, and right to one telephone call, too. Principal photography for Broke Down Palace began on December 15th, 1997, ending on March 13th, 1998. So, the movie was filmed on location, but not in Thailand. Wait. What? <laughs> so, if you're like Andrew saying that, you're probably not alone. Um, if you're like us, then your next question probably is... Where the fuck was it filmed? So believe it or not, it was actually filmed in the Philippines. And this brings us to the third and most important question that I assume Andrew's about to ask. Why? <laughs> so it was filmed in the Philippines because the filmmakers couldn't get approved to film the movie in Thailand. And to be honest, if you were to go to Thailand and say, hey, we'd like to make a movie here. Okay, sure. What's your movie? Well, it's about uh, the oppressive prison system here for and people planting drugs on tourists. And you want to film it here? Yes, in Thailand. Yes, a film about Thailand's prison system. Yes, no. I think really it's just anywhere that ends in land. Like you can't film at Disneyland, right? You can't film at Thailand. You're looking at me like I have dicks coming out of my eyes. So we're going to cut that joke. Uh, so even with the joke that I just said, they couldn't even get their proposal in front of the Thai Film Commission. So if you've seen Broke Down Palace, doesn't exactly paint Thailand or its government in the most positive light. In reality, it's actually pretty goddamn critical. And the negative portrayal of Thailand was a big problem. So I'm not sure if this is how things still work. Um, this is a movie podcast. 
Um, but back in 1997 to 1998, if an American studio wanted to make a movie in Thailand, they would contact a local production services company in Thailand. That company would then act as a liaison for the American film studio and present a translated version of the script to, to the Thai Film Commission. Yeah, they're basically like a sponsor. Yeah. So the film's commission, made up of 16 individuals from various parts of the Thai government, like the Departments of the Interior, Police, Foreign Affairs, Customs, etc., would then review the script and either grant permission for the American studio to film or deny the request. Typically, So what we're saying is that the police are greenlighting movies in Thailand, essentially. As of 97, 98. Don't know if that's the case anymore, but at the time, yeah. So typically request seems legit. Yeah. So typically requests would be denied if a film script portrayed Thailand or its government negatively. But Broke Down Palace didn't even make it that far. The film was deemed so critical of the Thai government that Fox couldn't even convince a local liaison company to associate themselves with the submission of the script. In other words, they never even had a chance of filming this thing in Thailand. If it can't even get past the first stage, that's pretty hard i mean that, that, that's pretty oh, tough yeah. so no they showed it to those local companies and they were like <laughs> uh, there's no fucking yeah way. there's absolutely no way so to the people who know the system and understand the way the thai government operates this probably wasn't all too surprising but fields was actually a little bit shocked in one interview regarding the process he said i think we're being honest and respectful and fair to their legal system and to their culture and to the monarchy but you never know how people are going to react. And this is an interesting observation to me, because on one hand, the movie serves as a commentary on how Americans feel entitled and fail to understand other cultures. And then on the other hand, this response is like a perfect example of Fields being entitled and not understanding this other culture. Yeah, it's a weird so it's juxtaposition. Like, it's like, dude, you get it because you wrote about it, but you also don't get it because you're doing it. Yeah. How did we end up in the Philippines? Well, that's where production designer Jim Newport came in. Okay. So Jim, also known as James William Newport, is an Emmy-nominated production designer and art director with the resume including more than 100 feature films and television series. He's best known for his work on Lost, The Shield, Bangkok Dangerous, and Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Nice. This dude lives in Thailand where he goes by the name Jimmy Fame. So this is like Duke Silver from... Parks and Recreation. That's exactly what it's like. That's Jared, that is a fucking perfect representation of this. This guy's he goes by the name Jimmy Fame, and at night, he's a blues singer who performs shows in Phuket, Thailand, and he just just fucking rocks out. That's awesome. Here's here's an example. You said you was up. I was lost your mind. No matter who you are, that's undeniably cool. <laughs> exactly. Right? So, yes. so this guy had been hanging out in Thailand for almost 10 years when he got the call to work on Broke Down Palace. So he knew his shit. But what happened next? Well, Jim knew that they couldn't film Broke Down Palace in Thailand. So he started looking for alternate, for alternate locations. The first place he went was the Philippines, which was a country that up until that point in his life, he had never visited. He met with crews in Manila and reported back to the studio very quickly. Quote, This is the place. I know Thailand very, very well, and you're not going to find another candidate that's going to work as well as this is going to work. But... So, I mean, you've got, you've got the Duke Silver 
of Thailand <laughs> telling you that the Philippines are just as good. Yeah. So you believe him. But despite the Philippines being a good match, there were still some details that needed to be figured out. Yeah, so like for starters, the street signs in the Philippines were in English, but Thai street signs were in Thai. Yes. So Jim and his team of British and Filipino artists made their own Thai street signs and redressed a bunch of the streets in Manila. Then there was the little issue that traffic drove on the opposite sides of the street in Thailand and the Philippines, which if you're watching a movie carefully, you're bound to notice. Luckily for the filmmakers, one of the executive producers, A. Kitman Ho, had already worked on some big-time shoots in the Philippines, most notably Oliver Stone's Platoon and Born on the Fourth of July. Right. So, as a result, Kitman Ho had some pull with the local authorities, and he was actually able to arrange it so that the flow of street traffic was temporarily reversed during filming to duplicate Bangkok's left side of the road system. Nice! That's pretty cool, That's man. a cool production design uh, trick. It's wild. Yeah. Uh, honestly, like, that's wild. On top of that, Newport and his crew built a variety of set pieces to help complete the look. And some of those included an arcade of 12 gilded styrofoam Buddhas, which is a very obvious shot. If you watch the movie, you'll recognize exactly what I'm talking about. There was also an Imperial Gilt and Marble Royal Hall of Justice set, which by itself cost $200,000 to build. And of course, there was a full-on Thai prison, which was actually converted from an existing mental health institution in the Philippines. Which, if you've seen this movie, that makes me a little concerned about the mental health institutions in the Philippines. But yes. anyway, <laughs> this set in particular made Adam Fields feel super stoked. He said, quote, This is as close a recreation you can get to the real women's prison I visited in Thailand several years ago. And I'm especially excited about this detail, Jared, because even the beer in this movie was a carefully crafted detail. You get get it? God crafted? Because yeah. craft, craft beer? Yes, I get it. It's craft get it? Okay. beer. Yeah. But seriously, though, Newport <laughs> went as far as inventing and designing the label for a fictional Thai beer called Ayutthaya. And it was named after a Siamese kingdom that existed from 1350 to 1767 that's now considered to be the precursor of modern Thailand. Hmm. And this is a little bit of a tangent, but since I'm a beer guy... Yes, please. If you couldn't tell from my joke, I thought I'd mention this. <laughs> Beer in Thailand boils down to these three big beer producers, which are Singha, Leo, and Chang, two of which I've tried. Beer was originally introduced to Thailand by Europeans, but since 1933, which is not that long ago, Thailand has been brewing its own beer. And you can find imported beer at most bars and restaurants, but these little local beers that they have are... Like, perfect low alcohol percentage beers, perfect for just, like, tamping down the spice level in the, the Thai food. Nice. Right? Like, you get some spicy pad Thai, Singha's going to do you well. All right? Um, something that's cool is craft beer is actually starting to come onto the scene in Thailand, but they have, not surprisingly, very strict laws and harsh penalties for home brewing. So, it's hard for people to learn how to brew and then start a craft beer brewery because just, like, the death penalty for drug trafficking there's very severe penalties for making beer in your own house um and while most places have been getting more lenient about that in 2016 thailand actually made it even harder to brew your own beer um they've been tightening the laws regarding alcohol so it's unlikely that we're going to see anybody other than those big three come into fruition the other funny fact about this is that people in thailand are very loyal to their brand like, whichever one of those three they pick, they'll buy T-shirts and shit. 
two of them are actually brewed by the same brewery. So there's really only two breweries in Thailand, <laughs> if you think about it. But anyway, that was an enormous tangent. No, it's interesting. But That's super interesting. As Jared knows, I'm the, I'm the beer nerd. I'm drinking craft beer right now. I had to talk about yeah, it. Yeah, totally. So. No, that's awesome. I like that. That's like, that's one of your things. So when you find something that is of interest and related to something that you love, please, that's, I like that we get to share that and that we get to go off on little tangents and discover things about that. It's fun, right? Alcoholism used to be a disease, <laughs> but now that the beer comes in fun cans, it's a hobby. So, so, any- <laughs> so anyway, we're all set up and ready to go into the Philippines. But there's some actual shots of Thailand in this movie, and the way that they got them is pretty fascinating. So we've talked about, like, B-roll shots that are needed. So even so, to set, like, the the background for all of this, they're going to need some shots of Thailand. And as we already mentioned, shooting in Thailand was pretty much deemed an impossibility at the start of the production. They were like, it's not going to happen. But, Jared, as you know, any guy with a sock and some lotion will tell you that there's nothing as good <sighs> as the real Christ. thing. So the filmmakers put together a covert second unit to film a select amount of shots in Thailand. So the second unit was able to gain entry into Thailand by posing as a small film crew filming a TV commercial. Once they got into the country, they filmed several key shots of iconic Bangkok backgrounds. And they even brought camera doubles for Claire Danes and Kate Beckinsale, and they sneakily captured long shot and rear view footage of them that could be spliced in amongst the close up footage captured in the Philippines. And that's pretty. F- Damn, dude, this is some covert shit. Yeah, that's pretty fucking cool. But if you if you've been keeping up with the podcast, it might also sound a little bit familiar to you. We covered something similar on an episode on episode eight when we talked about the world is not enough. Only that time, the crew had snuck into Istanbul to film a fictional movie titled Destiny. This is the second connection between this movie and James Bond that we've That made. is really funny. I was going to say, it also kind of remind me of the whole thing of taking doubles. Um, what they talked about, what we talked about a couple weeks ago on the, on the Other Sister, where they had two, like, doubles that they could film from the back that were, like, driving up city streets um in Sausalito and then they had the full film crew with um Juliette Lewis and Giovanni Ribisi filming their close their close up shots and all that in San Francisco itself. Right. So it's like a not so stunt double. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it's it's kind of like having a stand in um in that way. That actually might actually be called a stand in. Um but we've covered a handful of movies in a row that are pretty light in production stories. And Broke Down Palace does fall into that category, but here's what we do know. Yeah, so here's a cool thing that I found really fascinating, which is that they actually went to great lengths to get the costumes right in this movie. Despite the fact that Fields and Arata both spent time researching Thai prisons and interviewing the actual women in those prisons, they didn't think to look at what the women were wearing. Which is contradictory to what most men do, which is solely pay attention to what women are wearing. And in this case, it was a bit of an issue because... Now that Thai authorities knew that Fields and his crew were trying to make this movie, they weren't exactly keen on letting them come into the prisons and do recon for their costume department. So Thailand was, like, very anti this movie. There was no way that anyone obviously associated with it was going to get into the prisons, even to just look at the what they were wearing, right? So the other thing is you have to remember that this was 1999, so it wasn't like they could just Google Thai prison uniforms or Thai prison guard outfits and get thousands of results. I tried this, by the way, and I got 4,170,000 results in 0.86 seconds. So it was a different time back then. 
So once again, the film crew did some James Bond-level shit to get the intel that they needed. This time, they recruited a group of theater costuming students and asked them to go undercover as students working on their criminology thesis papers. These students pretended to be a huge admirers of the Thai penal system, and they asked to gain access to the Thai women's prison so that they could work on their papers. Yeah. Apparently, flattery gets you a long way because they got Interesting. in. And once they'd, quote, infiltrated the prison, end quote, they took notes on both the prisoner and guard uniforms and shared those notes with the movie's costume designer, April Ferry, who then turned around and made the costumes that you see in the final movie. So going to great fucking lengths to get these prison uniforms correct. Amazing. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. As great as the sets and the costume and the shot compositions were, the music was n- not. But no, you can't. No, that's that was the most distracting thing for me during this. But movie. I will say you can't. There's so there's two parts of the music. There's the film score and then there's the soundtrack music. So you can't really blame David Newman, who was the composer of the film score. He did a good job. Newman is an American composer and conductor with a knack for film scores, and in the span of his 30-year career, he's done music for around 100 feature films leading up to 1999. Some of those films have included Frank and Weenie in 1984, Critters in 1986, The Brave Little Toaster in 1987, Throw Mama from the Train in 1987. I've never heard of that, but it sounds interesting. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure in 1989, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey in 1991, The Mighty Ducks in 92, The Sandlot in 93, and The Coneheads in 93, The Flintstones in 94, Tommy Boy and Operation Dumbo Drop in 95. Operation Dumbo Drop is one of the best movies ever (laughs) made. Hands down, cinematic gem. (laughs) Underrated as fuck. Most people haven't even heard of it. It's fantastic. Have you seen it, Jerry? I don't think I know what it is, but I don't think I've seen it. Get your life. Well, right I have Disney Plus now, watch so it. it's probably up there. Matilda in nineteen ninety six, Jingle All the Way in nineteen ninety six, and Anastasia in nineteen ninety seven, for which he received an Academy Award nomination. He did three other movies in nineteen ninety nine too. They were Never Been Kissed, Bowfinger, and next week's film. But that's a t- that's won't be revealed until later. How the fuck have I never heard this guy's name before? I don't know. It's impressive, though. This, like, these are the best movies yeah. from the eight, late 80s and early 90s. Exactly. So after 99, you can hear his music in movies like Death to Smoochie, Ice Age, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, Duplex, and Girls Trip, because he's still working today. Holy yeah. shit. Man. And even though Newman has worked on all those popular movies, you might not recognize his name, but you probably should. Because he's one of many famous composers in the Newman family. Like, th- this is insane. His father, Alfred Newman, was the composer... F- the guy on the Mad Magazine covers? No. <laughs> His f- that was Alfred E. Newman. Yes. The compo- I'm like three for three on fuck-ups today. You're all good. His father, Alfred Newman, the composer for movies like All About Eve and Miracle on 34th Street... His brother Thomas Newman, who composed The Shawshank Redemption, The Green Mile, Finding Nemo, Wally, and American Beauty. His sister, a few good movies in there. His sister Maria Newman, who is a classical composer with some work rescoring classic silent films. His uncles Lionel and Emil Newman, and Emil Newman, who composed Hello Dolly and Hondo, respectively. 
His first cousin once removed, Joey Newman, who composed for the TV shows Little People, Big World, and The Middle. And finally, his cousin, Randy Newman. Yes, that Randy Newman. Bet you didn't ex- You got a friend in me. It's a pretty good Randy Newman impression. You got a friend in me. So. When the road <laughs> looks tough ahead. I was, just, I was seeing how long you- And your mouth. Still not done. Okay, here we go. Bet you didn't expect a movie. And mouths from <laughs> you. Dick. And so in the next film... Nice warm bed. <laughs> I'm okay. done. I, okay. I promise I'm done. It's all good. Um, so... You just remember what <laughs> So I bet you didn't expect a movie about heroin and Thai prisons to have a connection to Toy Story 2, did you? So with the entire family... With the entire goddamn family serving as composers and conductors and shit, the Newmans have become the extended family with the most Academy Award nominations at 92 total nominations. Jesus So anyway, Christ. the moral of the story here is that David Newman is just a really fucking good composer, so it's not his fault the music in this movie itself sucks. So if Newman is so good, this raises a question. Who do we blame then? That would most likely be the music editor slash music supervisor is a guy named Jeff Carson. Okay. I don't think we've talked about music supervisors on the show before, so to help you understand what a music supervisor does, here's a quick definition that Alexandra Patsavas, the founder of LA-based Chop Shop Music Supervision, provided in an interview with the Seattle Times. Okay. Okay? Quote, A music supervisor is somebody who is hired to create a signature sound for television, a film, or an ad project. And that can include anything from a main title to an instrument that a character would play on camera to any source music that you might hear in the body of the project. So a song you would hear in the background, a poster in a character's room, music supervisors deal with all aspects of music. So, in other words, a music supervisor is the person who picks all of the music in a movie or TV show. And that's why I'm assuming that Jeff Carson is to blame for the bad soundtrack in Broke Down Palace. Which is interesting, because he's actually worked on a lot of pretty solid movies, including Heavy Metal, Trading Places, Weird Science, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, Ace Ventura Pet Detective, Liar Liar, Galaxy Quest, Accepted, Iron Man 2, and Bill and Ted Face the Music. That's so... Accepted is, like, one of the best, like, music soundtracks for, like, at least for a comedy. Like, all of the song selections in that are fantastic. So Absolutely. I'll just, I'll leave this up to you. This was just a bad day at the office. I, I think you're right because these are fucking great movies and half of it, like heavy metal is 100% about the music. Yeah. You know, so the dude knows what he's fucking doing. Same with Bill and Ted. It's Same all with about Iron, music. Iron so, Man 2 the, with the ACDC. That's like one of my favorite, uh, like, even though I know Iron Man 2 is not like the most beloved Marvel film, it's got some flaws in it. The opening shot of Tony Stark falling out of the plane and into the Stark convention as shoot to thrill by ACDC plays is like one of my favorite scenes in any Marvel movie. It's so well done. And, but then you get to, I want my book. Okay. Yes. And then we get to that part, but I want my, again, bird. bad day at the office. Anyway. So this is not my book. <laughs> God damn it. Where is my, here we bird? go again. Anyway, <laughs> I'm, I'm done. Jared, I'm, I'm not going to go on as long as I did last time. Okay. <laughs> to be fair, 
a lot of the songs in Broke Down Palace sort of fade away into the background. And on top of that, I know that this is a matter of personal preference. So take it with a grain of salt. But the movie is filled with weird, spacey pop music and bizarre covers that, in my opinion, are not good. With that said, there are at least three songs out of the 14 on the soundtrack that absolutely shouldn't be here, in my opinion. Okay. The first one is Silence by Delirium featuring Sarah McLaughlin. This is the first song we hear in the movie, and despite being completely contradictory in tone to the actual movie, it's also just not good. To me, like it sounds like Dido got together with the lady from the ASPCA commercials and tried to write a song that would make me cry and fall asleep at the same time. And to be honest, I don't need help doing that. With that being said, the song is considered one of the greatest trance songs of all time. Really? And the Tiesto remix of the song was voted by Mixed Mag readers as the 12th greatest dance record ever. So what do I Wow. Do? Okay. I'll have, to go, yeah. I'll have to go listen to it like throughout, like without the lens of the movie around it and see like if I could hear. I, prob- I mean, it's probably been played at a show I've been to. So who well, knows? I, I mean, I've, I've seen Tiesto. Yeah, I, as and of I, I, bet you, I don't know if he's ever played it when I saw him, though. I bet you his version is good. <laughs> Above and Beyond's done a version of this song as well. Interesting. So a lot of the heavy hitters in the EDM scene are doing this huh. song. So there, there's got to be something there. Yeah. But I, late 90s EDM wasn't my thing. I'll be honest about that. Okay. Um, the second song here that we have to talk about is the Brian West remix of the Nelly Furtado song, Party's Just Begun Again. <laughs> From what I can tell, the Broke Down Palace soundtrack is the only place that this particular remix of the song Party can be found. So I guess that's something we could be thankful for. <laughs> You're not likely to be exposed to it somewhere else. The third and arguably the most offensive song in this movie is the terrible Solar Twins cover slash remix of the Clash song Rock the Casbah. I, I immediately, when it started playing, I was like, is this a fucking remix of Rock the Casbah? I'm going to tell you right now, Sharif don't like it, and neither do I. It's fucking terrible, okay? (laughs) The Solar Twins, if you don't know who they are, first of all, you're better off. Second of all, they were an English electronica duo that made just one album, which again is something we can be thankful for. And this cover is pure sacrilege. I don't think that anybody wanted, needed, or asked for a dancey cover of Rock the Casbah. But then again, Jared, as one music blogger pointed out, Rock the Casbah did reach number eight on the dance charts when it was released. Very interesting. So the original song was technically a dance song. Hmm. So once again, this just makes me ask, what do I actually know? Which is apparently not much. Very interesting. Hmm. But um, you remember that Grateful Dead connection that we talked about at the beginning? I do. Okay, so it gets a lot deeper. Um, Or it was almost a lot deeper. Um, I don't know too much about this, but apparently David Newman actually approached a band called Wild Colonials and asked them to record a cover version of the Grateful Dead song Broke Down Palace to be included in this movie. The band recorded the cover, but it didn't make it into the film. Why? Well, there were some kind of problem with obtaining the sync rights, and if you're not sure what that means, I had to look this up as well. A synchronization license, also known as sync rights, 
grants the user the right to synchronize a certain piece of music with audiovisual images on film, video, etc. So you need a special license for that. So when someone wants to use the recording of a song in a movie, they have to get permission from the person who owns the sound recording, typically the record label of the performer, as well as the owner of the composition, typically the publishing company of the songwriter. When it comes to Broke Down Palace, it's not exactly clear what the specific problem was when it came to obtaining the sync rights, but looking into this whole world of music licensing does answer one of these questions, which is, why didn't they just get the Grateful Dead version of the song to play in the first place? It seems like the place to start, So, right? yes, it seems like the very logical place to start. But record labels and artists generally don't let people have sync rights for free. And typically, the bigger the artist, like the Grateful Dead, the more expensive the rights become. So a lot of time, producers who don't have a lot of money to throw around will use a cover version of a song in order to save money on the record label side. Okay, I, that makes yeah. sense. So no matter what actually happened, though, at the end of the day, we've got a movie called Broke Down Palace that doesn't have a single version of the song Broke Down Palace in it. Does that make sense? Sure. So don't worry. Why not? If you're desperate to hear the Wild Colonials version of the song, you can find it on the band's film music compilation album, Real Life Volume 1 from 2000. And that's real spelled R-E-E-L. Just like film real. Um, Do we have any fun facts about this movie this week? I don't personally, Jared, but I got my buddy Alan to provide some. So here we go. Hey, everybody. Here's some fun facts. The population in Thailand is 63 million people. It is twice the size of Wyoming. Its chief exports are textiles, footwear, and rice. Each year, approximately 13,000 people are killed in car accidents in Thailand. The climate Alan, in Thailand uh, is... Alan, why don't you skip to the last card there, buddy? Okay, sorry. Thanks, Alan. All right. Anyway. Let's talk about the release and reception. Supposedly, the test screenings for this movie weren't very good. There's not a lot of definitive information on how test screenings for this film went, like with American Beauty. There is one review online from an outlet called culturesnob.net, so this will be fun and not irritating to read in the slightest. (laughs) Ready? The writer states the following, quote, Not to give too much away, But Broke Down Palace also has one of the most hilariously ludicrous happy endings in recent memory, with a smile and a voiceover from Alice that I really hope were tacked on because of poor test screenings. Personal opinion insertion here. I don't feel like this movie has a happy ending, to be honest. But, anyway. There's nothing that either of us could find that says definitely whether or not test screenings for this were poor. Or whether this was just a snobby writer thinking that the ending was so bad he hoped it was because of poor test screenings. But this was quite literally the only thing that we could find. Yeah, there wasn't much out there. Test screenings are most likely the reason why this film didn't end up getting released in 1998. Fox held the film for a full year, and there was really no buzz for it upon release at all. Except for the print ads, which were pointed out in a review from themoviereport.com. And here's what they said, quote, The perky print ads for this gravely earnest drama suggest a cosmetics campaign and, ironically enough, end up painting a more accurate picture of what the film is really like. And hence, what is so wrong with it? So, like it or not, it's showtime. The film held its premiere in New York City on August 10th, 1999, before being theatrically released a few days later on August 13th, 1999. It opened with $3,871,616 at the box office, placing ninth. 
That's not a lot of the money. The leader that weekend was the Sixth Sense. I see dead people. So the following weekend after that release, it dropped 54% to $1,780,387, losing most of its theater count due to low demand. The, oh, no. the domestic run of Broke Down Palace eventually closed at $10,115,013. So it made half of its money in the first two weeks. Yes, but it gets kind of worse from that. So you said it made half its money in the first two weeks. Yes. When all was said and done, Fox got a return of about $5.5 million after theaters took their percentage. This was against a budget of $25 million. So this is not good. That's a flop. That's a, that's a flop. And the overseas box office market didn't help it much either, with only $1,752 being made internationally. So this could be blamed Jesus. on a number of things. It could be blamed on the fact that people thought it was going to be really bad. It could have been... I I think generally... like I was kind of referring to this last, uh, last episode where I was like, if a movie was bad and a studio didn't have faith in it, all they could do is just say, well, we're just going to not release it um, or we're going to not promote it or something. Studios can do that today, but with the existence of social media, you can kind of find anything you want. Well, the other thing, Jared, is there's just a lot more people now. Yeah. Everything has its audience. Yeah. And le- like this is very indicative of what... 90s and even early 2000s movie culture is it's like we're going to release these things and we have to target it specifically to these people we don't know what an like a seg a specific audience is yet um other than your basics like there's the sci-fi there's the action now it's like there's a movie for literally everybody well and, and that's the, the the thing right it's like back then it's like you have to kind of market it to everybody and hope that you convince people to see it even if it's not their kind of thing. Exactly. There's a lot of like accidental revenue in 1999. Exactly. Right? It's like some of these ad campaigns come out and they're almost like tricking people into seeing a movie that they wouldn't otherwise see. Whereas now it's like, all right, we made this weird ass movie. We have this weird ass group of people. If all of you watch it, we'll be good. Exactly. So with that being said, the film obviously didn't do well in... The box office, critics didn't think so, think it was that great of a film either. So, on Rotten Tomatoes, this film has a 31% critic score out of 35 critics. To be optimistic, Jared, that's a little bit over 1% per critic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's still not, yeah, great, not great, but at least it's something. But the audience seemed to like this film at least a little bit more than the critics, giving it a 66% audience score. Still a D, but... It's there's a difference between seeing when you see the rotten sign and the the tomato sign right next to each other on the website. So there's some differing of opinion on this. I think people sixty six percent is higher than I would have expected. Like people didn't love this, but it got better reception than it was. So I mean, I'll, I'll say this: in my opinion, there's nothing terrible about it. No, it's got some issues, especially related to like perception. absolutely yeah but as far as like plot and story go it's interesting enough the acting's good enough you know it's not it's not the worst movie out there it's not the worst movie we've covered in the last 22 definitely not um so we have as usual a positive and a negative review what do you want to do i'll go negative 
So this positive review is one of the only and one of the only available that we could find. Like I said in the past, when I've clicked on Rotten Tomatoes reviews, some of those sites don't exist anymore. So the links don't work. But one of the only reviews listed positive was from Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times, who gave this... He liked this He movie? gave it a three out of four star review. No yeah. shit. Um, so, quote... The heart of the film is in the performances of Danes and Beckinsale after they're sent to prison. Consider, one moment your life, your entire life is ahead of you. College, marriage, kids, a career, a home, middle fulfillment. The next moment, all of that has been taken away. Your future has been locked in a foreign prison. One poignant scene shows the girls shouting across an open space to visitors, friends and relatives from home, whose lives continue while theirs are on hold. The movie, directed by Jonathan Kaplan of Over the Edge and The Accused, plays the material straight to great effect. There are no sneaky plot tricks or grandstand plays, and the reasoning of a Thai judge during an appeal hearing is devastating in its logic. There is, however, an interesting development at the end, which I will not even hint at, which requires the audience to decide whether something can be believed and what exactly the motives are behind it. Claire Danes, clear-eyed and straightforward, plays Alice as just a little more complex than her friend. She comes from a poorer background, has a reputation for getting into trouble, and doesn't seem trustworthy to Darlene's dad. Pullman, weighing the pros and cons, dealing with a cynical and unhelpful U.S. Embassy official, Lou Diamond Phillips, has seen cases like this before. The girls should have known not to trust strangers, to be suspicious of a free trip to Hong Kong, to never let their luggage out of the sight of the both of them. Should have. Now they have a lot of time to think about that. Interesting. I think he pointed out the things about this movie that are very relatable and interesting. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And, and there is like, we talked about that a little earlier, like the whole, it could happen to you kind of fear trick. Yeah. But I think that's also kind of what makes this movie interesting is like, holy shit. This is like scary to think about. To me, it gets really interesting when like I'm sitting there watching this movie where I'm, kind of like oh god wow that's shocking like when they get pulled out of line like it's a scary situation and i'm kind of wondering where it's gonna go and then they shift the story over to bill pullman and i'm like okay now this is getting interesting because it's getting kind of a he's a lawyer but it's almost like kind of a detective style story and i love like mystery stories the other thing that's interesting about this one is i, I know you only pulled a small chunk of his review but it doesn't mention any of those other three movies that this has been compared to the whole time. Maybe he does elsewhere. I but. think he did beforehand. I just pulled the part where it was talking more critically about the film, but you're right. He didn't, I didn't really see it mentioned that much. So it's always fascinating to read his work. As I've said many times that's, before. Well, and that's one of the hard things about this movie is that a lot of people are not judging it for what it is. They're judging it for what it seems to be compared to the other movies they've seen like this, right? Which is natural, but it's a problem. So, Anyway, negative reviews. Jared pulled two. I'm going to read them. All yeah. right. And this one is from Eric D. Snyder, who by coincidence was hired by ericdsnyder.com to write film <laughs> what reviews. A coincidence. What an amazing coincidence that is. Here's what he had to say. Quote, watching Broke Down Palace is like watching several different movies at once, and none of them are very good. Full of themes and characters that are introduced and then go nowhere. The movie is melancholy, almost dready, as it tries to make us ponder the question, what would you do for a friend? He continues, The movie tries several avenues, but usually fails at them. 
It tries to make us wonder if maybe one of the girls is guilty, but that doesn't work. Lou Diamond Phillips gets high billing as a DEA officer, but that goes nowhere. Seemingly dozens of characters are revealed to be corrupt, but none of those paths are ever pursued. It's like we're watching the brainstorming session for a movie and not the actual movie. Beckinsale and Danes, for what it's worth, do their best at portraying characters that are woefully underwritten. And in the end, it's that lack of character development that kills the movie. For while the film wants us to rejoice at one character's literal freedom from prison and another's metaphoric freedom from past sins, we can do little but shrug our shoulders at the fate of two girls who, for all intents and purposes, were actually pretty equally two-dimensional anyway. So yeah, I mean, that's critical but fair for yeah. sure. All right, so so that that review, pretty even keel, fairly negative. This other one is from Marianne Johansson of FlickPhilosopher.com, and she spelled philosopher with an F, so fuck you, her. You brought this up before. I've pulled from this website before. I can't stand that fucking shit. <laughs> her review is titled Midnight Express 90210, which is snarky and kind of funny. So I'm going to read an excerpt, okay? You ready? Yeah. All right. So these two girls, right? They're like bestest friends in the whole world. And they take this like totally cool vacation in this place that's like a whole different country or something. It's so amazingly exotic. And they meet this guy. Oh my God. He's like totally cute and Australian or something. But he gets them in like so much trouble and they go to jail. Can you believe it? And this like foreign girl there is so totally mean to them. And when they're on trial, they go to the judge. We like totally did not do this. And we're like Americans anyway. So let us go. And he doesn't. It's like total injustice or something. That's pretty much how Broke Down Palace feels. It's like the WB remade Return to Paradise. Two stupid, ignorant, spoiled, naive, rich, white American girls get busted for drug smuggling in Thailand, and we're supposed to feel bad for them because they may have been set up and, worse, are forced to endure bad haircuts in prison. Yankee Hank Green, Bill Pullman, an expat American practicing law in Thailand, receives a tape in the mail from Alice Morano, Claire Danes, who's doing time behind Thai bars, busted for trying to smuggle heroin out of the country. She narrates the tale of how she and her friend Darlene Davis, Kate Beckinsale, planned an amazing, memorable trip to celebrate their high school graduation and how it turned nasty when the attractive young Australian who calls himself Nick Parks, Daniel LePayne, invited them to spend a weekend in Hong Kong. Flying to meet Nick in Hong Kong, they are arrested at the airport in Thailand when bags of heroin are found in a backpack one of them is carrying. Both swear they knew nothing about the smack. Can he help them? And that's not the only annoying thing about Broke Down Palace. The title, by the way, is the nickname given to their prison. Prison Life is a music video in which slow-mo shots of Claire Danes are meant to express angst and Euro-techno-pop lyrics express emotional turmoil, which conveniently avoids the need for the juvenile script to attempt any dialogue richer than you'd hear in a high school corridor between classes. (laughs) The girls bicker over the backpack like they're talking about a lost hairbrush. You had it last. No, you did! (laughs) And snipe over which of them was Nick's dupe like they were debating who should have gone to the prom with him. And then there's the distasteful, ugly Americanism displayed by the fathers of both girls who don't care whether their daughters are actually innocent. And both seem to think the kids are in fact guilty, but demand their kids be released anyway. In the end, Broke Down Palace borrows its resolution from the aforementioned Return to Paradise. But while it worked in that far superior film, here it feels cheap, pat, and improbable. But I suppose it's no more improbable than Broke Down Palace's fine case all agreeing to perform in this turkey. 
What were they thinking? Maybe they'd all been sampling the contents of that backpack. So this motherfucker is asserting that they were on heroin. Yeah. So the other thing that I wanted I wanted to say for this. Johansson also on this review gives a viewing recommendation which each of the films she's reviewed at this time. So for example, at the end of a review for Leonardo DiCaprio's The Beach, she writes, Rated R, viewed at a public multiplex screening. For Burkdown Palace, she writes, viewed at home on a small screen. So it's not the okay. greatest vote of confidence for this movie. I mean, she could have said, don't view it at all. Yeah, it could have. Yeah, you could have gone that way. But so at least there's something. That's, yeah, it's true. So she, she really fucking hated it. But however, I also, it but I also like. want to point out something that's wrong with her review. She says, two ignorant, spoiled, naive, rich white American girls. Only one of them is kind of technically upper class. They're, that's yeah. true. But I mean, compared to the respective poverty, true. Yeah. Okay. Thailand, yes. That, they're both that makes perfect pretty sense. well off. So I like really what I think she's trying to say there is two privileged Americans. Okay, that makes more sense. I would one hundred percent agree with. Agreed. So, language aside, you know, I, I agree with you. Like when I read that, I kind of stumbled over it, but I also understand what she's going yeah. for. So let's talk about the legacy beyond nineteen ninety nine for Broke Down Palace. Let's do it. Is there one? I'm, I feel like we're the only two people that have watched this movie since night. Here we go. Let's do it. So Jonathan Kaplan is not helmed another feature, just a few episodes of TV shows, and it looks like he stopped directing completely in 2013. Now, I don't know if this is because of this film. It's We haven't talked to him, but we're just stating the facts here. Um, but apparently, this movie pissed a lot of people off. It's controversial as fuck, yeah. man. So, for starters, this movie was banned in Thailand. In the filming section, we told you that the Thai government wasn't fond of the way the film criticized them or their justice system. The filmmakers and the studio always had a suspicion that the movie would never be distributed in Thailand. And it wouldn't have been the first time. Fox's 1956 Rodgers and Hammerstein musical The King and I was banned because of the portrayal of a despotic 19th century Thai ruler. And to be fair, there are actually a lot of movies that are banned in Thailand, such as Kevin S- <laughs> This is amazing. Kevin Smith, Zack and Mary make a porno because the Thai film board thought it would inspire Thai teenagers to make their own pornos. I highly doubt <laughs> I highly doubt a Thai teenager is going to make a film called Suck My Cockachino. But I mean that movie was even censored in the US yes. though. Most of the DVDs just call it Zack and Mary. They don't have I know. Title. That's very interesting. I want to find one that has the full title on it. The 2007 remake of Halloween was banned because of depictions of violence. I'll be honest. I, that movie's... Rob Zombie's Halloween movies are pretty fucked up. I, I could... If they were trying to make an appeal for some... Like, I could understand that. I thought you were going to say, eh, they're not missing much. I think that the first one is actually really, like well done and a very interesting different take second one i walked out feeling depressed i wasn't i didn't i wasn't feeling it but i understand anyway i understand and saw six which was banned due to pro-taxing protests and violence in thailand and if that wasn't enough and this is wild claire danes is barred from entering the philippines altogether yeah this one kind of cracks me so yeah do you want to tell this Sure. So uh, according to an article published in CBS News from October 1st, 1998, quote, President Joseph Estrada of the Philippines, a former movie star, 
said he believes Hollywood actress Claire Danes should be banned from entering the Philippines for having disparaged the country's capital. Specifically, Estrada said, quote, she should not be allowed to come here. She should not even be allowed to set Jesus forth Jesus Christ. What did she do? Right, right. So apparently in April of 1998, Claire Danes did an interview with Vogue magazine. And in that interview, she said Manila was, quote, a ghastly and weird city. And if you're thinking, hey, that doesn't sound like a reason to ban someone from entering the country. Slow your roll. Because Danes also said the following in an interview with Premier Magazine. Quote, Manila fucking smelled of cockroaches with rats all over and there is no sewage system and the people do not have anything. No arms, no legs, no eyes. As a result of those comments, which President Estrada gently referred to as, quote, uncalled for, Manila City Council declared Danes persona non grata and banned all of her movies from being shown in Manila. And the city council passed this resolution 23 to 3, which is a blowout. Wow. Councillor Kim Atianza, the principal author of the resolution, and one of the mayor's children said the ban would continue indefinitely until Danes made a public apology. Claire Danes did eventually issue an apology, but it wasn't exactly considered sincere. So here's what she said. Quote, Because of the subject matter of our film Broke Down Palace, the cast was exposed to the darker and more impoverished places of Manila. My comments in Premiere Magazine only reflect those locations, not my attitude towards the Filipino people. They were nothing but warm, friendly, and supportive. Atienza responded to the apology, calling it a, quote, excuse made by Hollywood press officers and not a genuine apology. He went on to say, we are not hard to appease, but we know if an apology is true or not. We will lift the ban only if we are satisfied. And as far as I can tell, that ban lasted 20 years. There was a tweet from Kim Atienza from August 10th, 2020. So last year where he said she, Claire Danes, has apologized many times. Claire Danes was young and careless then and has matured to be more responsible and retrospect in her observations. Claire is very welcome if she wants to. So that ban was literally just lifted a year ago. Wow. And in a time when she literally can't travel right now. Right? And I'm I'm just excited because my uncle Russ, who lives in the Philippines, can finally watch Homeland. Well, there you go. Yeah. Good for you, Uncle Russ. So, I have one burning question. Who did it? I think we know. I think, I think, I think Nick Parks fucked him over. So, but do you think, like, one of the girls did it? Do you think that, and it just doesn't say, do you think that it was the, like, the bellhop at the, the, uh, the hotel that they were staying at? Could it have, like, they're... There's so many little things that it could be, and I think that's actually one of the things that works a little well in this, in that you're kind of left with this things just happen mentality, which makes it a little bit scarier in a weird way. I don't get the sense that either of them agreed to do this. Neither do I. So I, I think it was, I mean, I think the Australian dude was shady as fuck. Yeah. But... I, I don't think either of them willfully agreed to do this. Yeah. All right, man. Tell me your reactions. How did you feel about this shit? So 
there are a couple of moments of overacting in this film, particularly like when they're in the prison and she's at least to me it seemed like overacting like the which one of them uh i believe it was claire danes that i don't speak thai why are you like when she's like yelling at the officer when he hands i don't know there were just a couple moments that i felt like were like some of their dialogue back and forth the way that they bicker it was just it was a little bit weird and it didn't match the tone of what the film was the final shot of this movie is weird i agree with that review I think it's kind of like, I don't know if it's her smiling and the reaction of it. Like I get the moment and I understand what it's trying to do. It's that in a way, even though she's in prison, she's freed herself because she's been a good friend and she's gone through this character arc of redeeming who she is as a person and taking responsibility. But right. the music, the way that it's panned in like a music video, just it's a weird shot. That's my only thing. She also looks like she's about to turn into the fucking Joker. I didn't think it was that bad, but... <laughs> For the good things of this movie, I think they did do a very good job of showing how dark and unsettling the police bust in that airport is. It's an unnerving scene. I don't think it's like a... I, I didn't walk away from the film going, oh God, it could happen to me. But in a cinematic moment... I thought it was well done in that it sets up and it's just one of those things where you don't know who did it. It just happened so right. now and you're probably not even going to get an answer. And that leaves you kind of in the same mindset as both of them, which is, okay, we can't figure out who did it. We just need to get out of here. Um, I think that I'm with you. The tension is handled. Yes. Well. I think the scene in the palace towards the end of the film is really well done and it's a nice little twist when you think that they're going to get out and then it's like, oh shit, that went wrong. I think that, I think that Bill Pullman and Jacqueline Kim are scene stealers in this movie. Like I said, I really like the lawyer slash detective element of movies. Um, and I love mystery. So that's a huge thing, but I wanted more of them working together every time we would see them. Like, uh, I really enjoyed the two of them together on screen as, kind of like the crime solvers of this so i don't know that's what i that's yeah. what i liked from it and the moments i enjoyed i agree um what do you think of this uh, okay i'm gonna start with my dislikes okay. the first one is that after last week's episode on the other sister i thought we'd gotten away from the r word on this podcast but claire danes dropped a really big one in this yeah. movie and it was very very distracting yeah I also felt that her character was basically just like a Karen, which didn't really exist in 1999. But <laughs> I, I was just like, oh, God, just shut the fuck up. Like the whole time. And also Kate Beckinsale couldn't seem to maintain her American accent for a full scene at any point in this movie, which was a little bit of a problem for me. Yeah, She broke into the British a little bit here and there. <laughs> but really the thing that I hated the most about this movie was that fucking horrific remix of Rock the Casbah that just makes me want to step off of the edge of the Golden Gate Bridge. It was terrible. Um, things that I liked. I liked that Nick Parks and Skip Karn were anagrams and that no one in the movie ever realized that they were anagrams or said so because it made me feel smart because I realized it. <laughs> I also really appreciated that they went through the trouble of coming up with a fictional beer because I think that's kind of fun. I think that they did a really good job of handling the dramatic irony with the signing of the papers in the, the prison cells when they were in those holding cells. I think that whole scene was handled very, very well. Hmm. And that's about it. I, I didn't hate this movie, 
but I really didn't like it either. I, I feel like I feel pretty neutral about it. I think it was okay. I was entertained. I wouldn't watch it again. There's no rewatchability to it at all, in my opinion, but I feel I feel good having seen it. Yeah, I thought it was all right. I didn't, like I said, I didn't love it, but I didn't hate it. Yeah, I think Once was pretty good. I mean, yeah. I think I think the only thing we can say to end this is, by Grabthar's hammer, you shall be avenged. Because next week we're talking about fucking Galaxy Quest, and I'm so excited to talk yes. about this movie. This is going to be like one of the nerdiest, craziest, fun movies we're going to be talking about. Um, it may take us an extra week to get all of the information for this one together, because there's a there's lot a of it lot out there. Out there. So keep watching the podcast or uh, the podcast feed. You you listen to a podcast. Watch the podcast feed. So anyway, keep uh, keep checking out our Twitter and Instagram handles. Uh, if you have a question about the show, what did you guys? If you want to let us know what you thought about the episode, um, email us at uh, 1999pod at gmail And other than that, I mean, I think that's it. What anything else you got, Andrew? Before we log off. Don't send us any more weird Russian shit to our Google Docs. We don't That's, like that. That, that, yeah, that that was that was All a right. weird moment last week. All right. All right. Be kind. Rewind, everybody. We will see you next time. I love all of you. Bye bye. Coming soon to theaters. In the far reaches of the galaxy. <laughs> A civilization is under siege. We are all that is left. They've searched the universe for a leader. Stay tuned for scenes from next week's Galaxy Quest. Never give up. Never surrender. You will save us. What they got. Never give up and never surrender. We're struggling TV actors. You are our last hope. Where's my limo? Okie dokie. And they're about to put on a command performance. Eight million light years away. We are actors, not astronauts. You are our protectors. That was a hell of a thing. Now. Laredo, take us out. Get a move to the right. Would you sit, sit your, your ass down? You want to drive this to... Acting like heroes. The whole thing was just a misunderstanding. May not be enough. They look like little children. Hi, little guy. I'm done. DreamWorks Pictures presents Tim Allen, Sigourney Weaver, Alan Rickman. Galaxy Quest. You're just gonna have to kill it. We'll go for the mouth to throw his vulnerable spots. It's a rocket that not any vulnerable spots. <laughs>